In 58 AD, the Christian church in Rome found itself deeply divided between her Jewish and Gentile members. To help guide the church towards unity, St. Paul wrote the longest of his 13 letters to God's beloved in Rome. You could argue that Paul's lengthiest letter was the most important letter ever written. Not just by Paul, by anyone, ever. The most prolific of New Testament authors, the second most influential character in the Christian tradition, an anti-Jesus zealot and Pharisee who changed course on the road to Damascus to become a primary architect of the Christian faith. He wrote a letter to the fledgling church that would help define her beliefs early on and continues to help define who we are as Jesus people today. It's a profoundly historical book written out of a deep personal understanding of and relationship with God. Romans, the most important letter ever written. Hey friends, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. If you're not in a place where you have access to a traditional Bible, as always, you can take your digital device and you can open up the version, or it's also called the Bible app and all the notes and scriptures have already been uploaded in there. If you do have access to a traditional Bible though, this is the series where you're gonna wanna use that. This is one of those series where you're gonna wanna highlight things, you're gonna wanna underline things, circle words, write things out in the margin. Wherever it is that you're watching us from, I love you. Thank you for being a part of our family. You are marvelous. So we're going to start a new series today, and it's a little bit unlike anything else we've ever done. We've done other series based on books of the Bible before, but those series were different from the fact that they had a definitive end date. This study, however, does not. This is the first time we've ever done an open-ended series. And so we're going to talk about the book of Romans until it feels like we have a clear understanding of it. It's going to be a very thorough look into what is perhaps the most robust letter in the entire New Testament, if not all of Scripture. And I think if you'll fully engage in this series, it will establish some patterns in your life that will change not only how you read the Bible going forward, but how you understand its ideas and how you allow those ideas to change you and your family's behavior going forward. It's not so much a preaching series as it is a teaching series, which is why I've chosen to deliver it and communicate it from behind my desk so as to avoid any of the potential unintentional theatrics that might distract from the content of the teaching. And so to help you even further process and digest the content, we're going to hold life groups in conjunction with the series. They start this week, they're going to be held on Zoom calls so that you can see each other while still maintaining proper social distancing. You can go to the Life Group's link on our website and you can sign up for one of those there, please. That's something that you're definitely going to want to do so that you can ring out everything that you can. I'm also going to do a Zoom call every week where you can ask me questions about those particular messages. This week's will be Tuesday at 8 o'clock p.m. You can also RSVP for that on our site as well. I've actually felt like God's been pushing me and prompting me to do a series on Romans for a couple of years, but I've avoided it because of how robust it is. There's a richness to Romans that I think is unparalleled in all of literature, whether that's scriptural or secular. In fact, it's regarded by many scholars as the most profound piece of writing in existence, which makes it one of the most challenging books 
in all of the Bible. So with all that in mind, let's dive in today to a teaching that we're simply calling who. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for who you are. God, you are great and you are so greatly to be praised. God, you deserve all of the honor, all of the affection, all of the adoration, all of the attention that we could possibly muster to give to you. And so God, even in these difficult times, these unprecedented, unknown times, we know that you are there. So today, God, I pray that your word would in a supernatural way jump from the page, plant itself in our hearts, take root, and grow us into the people that you want us to be. God, make us less so you can become more. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you've ever been around here for very long or, or if you've ever heard me speak very much, you know one of the things we talk about a lot around here is context because the key to understanding any document is context. And context is not complicated. We were taught how to discover it way back in the first grade with the five W's, who, what, when, where, and why. So before we even get into the first chapter of the book of Romans, let's talk about those things, starting today with the who. Who wrote this timeless treasure, this magnum opus we call Romans? Well, it was written by this complex, complicated genius we've come to know by two names, Saul and Paul. Names that due to a pivot point in the biblical book of Acts, we've assumed changed at his Christian conversion and the subsequent call for him to champion Christ's cause. But as you look a layer below the surface, it seems logical that it was a duality that he held long before that Book of Acts encounter and likely held long after. Saul was his Hebrew name and it meant asked of God. Paul was his Roman name and it meant little, which may have referred to his physical stature or it may have been prophetically pointing to the life that he, along with the other Jesus followers of that day, including the disciple John, who would pen the words, he must increase, but I must decrease, the life that they would live referring to their relationship with their risen Savior, Jesus. Saul and Paul. I imagine his parents referring to him by Saul in their home while his friends referred to him by Paul on the playground. Regardless of the salutation though, you choose his impact on not just his culture, but on all culture going forward is undeniable. I mean, over the course of a 17 year period from 50 to 67 AD, he would write an astonishing 14 epistles or letters, which would go on to comprise more than half of the New Testament. He was both a story of greatness and a story of grit. And the story of his life proves God's ability to use any of us regardless of our baggage. Anytime you engage in serious study of any great life, you need to brace yourself for surprises. And incidentally, the greater the life, the more shocking the surprises. It's inevitable that the circumstances and events that led to the greatness in that person took place in the hidden years when few were looking and no one actually cared. But the steel of greatness is forged in the pit. 
It's important we remember that, especially when we find ourselves in a pit that we've convinced ourselves nothing of value will ever come out of. The need to embrace ourselves for surprises rings especially true of this man, who many of you have come to know as Saint Paul. I mean, the first portrait that we see of him in scriptures is both brutal and bloody. The man looks more like a terrorist than a teacher of the way, which is incidentally what this group of Jesus followers was called. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. And so they called themselves the way. In Acts chapter six, we meet a man named Stephen who scriptures describe as a man full of God's grace and power, who spoke with spirit-anointed wisdom and whose countenance radiated like the face of an angel. Nevertheless, he's accused by a group of non-Jesus Jews of blasphemy, which just means reviling or showing contempt or lack of reverence for God. And so this man, Stephen, this beautiful man, is dragged before the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish Supreme Court. And in a rage, they hurled him into the street and forced him outside the city where they pummeled him with large, jagged stones until he fell flat and died. Saul, or your... St. Paul, observing the entire episode, stood among the howling mob, holding the robes of Stephen's murderers, gleefully grinning with sadistic satisfaction. I think it's interesting how the message describes this. It describes it like this. Yelling and hissing, the mob drowned him out. Now in full stampede, they dragged him out of town. They pelted him with rocks. The ringleaders took off their coats and asked a young man named Saul to watch them. As the rocks rained down, Stephen prayed, Master Jesus, take my life. Then he knelt down, praying loud enough for everyone to hear. Master, don't blame them for this sin. His last words. Then he died. Saul was right there, congratulating the killers. He hated the name of Jesus and he hated anyone who spoke of it favorably. And, and as shocking as it may seem, it's important to see and, and important for us not to forget the pit from which Paul came. In fact, the better we understand the darkness of his past, the deeper we'll understand the gratitude for his grace. How does he go from a religious zealot crusading against Jesus people to the greatest missionary to non-Jews around the world? Well, to discover that, we have to go back to his genesis, back to his birthplace, back to his childhood home. Surprisingly, Paul didn't come from a place marked with anger and violence. He wasn't some victim of abuse who grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. Life for Paul actually began quite peacefully. He was born in a city called Tarsus. It was the capital city of the Roman province Cilicia, which is in what's now modern-day Turkey. It was an urban center and was highly educated. Its prosperity was well known around the world and according to the book of Acts, it was no ordinary city. Its commercial activities were so widespread that it had official representatives in other strategic cities around the world just to protect the interests of its business people in those towns. The city adopted a Hellenistic identity in the 4th century, meaning that it had submitted to Greek influences and taken on a Greek identity, starting with the conquests of Alexander the Great. And so they had fully adopted Greek history, language, and culture. Rome claimed it as one of their provinces in 64 BC and made it a free city, meaning 
They had the influence of the Greeks, but the protection of the Romans. It was one of the greatest university towns in all the world and had been deemed a greater center of philosophy than even Athens or Alexandria. It was one of the few cities in the world to have its own library. So Paul spent his early years in an environment that valued education. And he was regarded as one of their top students. Simply put, Paul was a genius. The Jewish population in Tarsus was also significant, among which were Paul's parents, both of whom were Pharisees, which is members of the party most fervent in Jewish nationalism and strict in the observance of and obedience to the law of Moses. From his infancy, Paul was fluent in Hebrew, Greek, Latin, and at home his family would have spoken Aramaic, a derivative of Hebrew and the spoken language of Jesus. His family actually would have looked to Jerusalem like Islam looks to Mecca and a pilgrimage would have been paramount to them. His mother tragically died when he was nine years old and he was raised in a single parent home. On the flip of Jesus, who history tells us likely lost his father at a young age, was left to be raised by a single widow, Paul was raised by a single widower. Interestingly, the difference created was formative. It was dynamic. Typically, someone raised by a single mother gets more affection where someone raised by a single father gets more direction because usually a man is more about purpose where usually a woman is more about provision. So Paul grows up in a single father home and his father was a prominent businessman who owned a tent making company, meaning that Paul grew up very well off, if not very wealthy. And he was the beneficiary of an equally rich religious and intellectual heritage. He attended the finest schools that money could buy so that at the age of 13, he had mastered Jewish history, the poetry of the Psalms and the majestic literature of the prophets, as well as being very well versed in Greek history, religion, philosophy, poetry, science, and music. He was ready for higher education. So in 14 AD, he was sent on his pilgrimage to Jerusalem, where he sat for the next five or six years at the feet of Gamaliel, the most respected teacher of Judaism in his day, and the grandson of Hillel, the most famous of all Jewish teachers. And again, he excelled, becoming one of Gamaliel's prized pupils. And he, he learned to dissect the text. He, he learned how to debate in question and answer style, known as the diatribe in the ancient world. He learned how to expound the scriptures and the law because a rabbi wasn't only part preacher, he was also part lawyer who prosecuted and defended those who broke the sacred law. Saul lived for the day that he'd become a member of the Jewish Supreme Court called then the Sanhedrin. Together, those 71 men ruled over Jewish life and religion seated on curved benches in a courtroom, which, which was precisely the place where they heard Stephen deliver his brave, fateful confession of faith. Saul, now a successful lawyer in the bustling courts of Jerusalem, stood among the audience listening to Stephen's defense. And this is where he became a religious zealot. Ever since the day of Pentecost, which is recorded in the book of Acts chapter 2, and was 50 days after Passover, which was when Jesus 
was crucified. We talked about that on Easter Sunday. Jerusalem had been abuzz with unprecedented religious activity. The more these now bold apostles preached the good news of Jesus' resurrection, the more the people were converted. Everything was changing, even long-standing traditions. People were embracing Jesus by the thousands, and the established religious leaders were incensed by what they were witnessing. Enough was enough. And that was when Saul formulated his plan. And if that plan was successful, he would be guaranteed a seat in the Supreme Court. His plan? He would hunt, capture, and kill these followers of the way. And don't miss this. He did that in the name of God. This man, who by his own testimony was blameless according to the law, blindly believed his bloody deeds honored God by ridding the earth of this cult. And so, according to the scriptures, Saul set his plan in motion and began ravaging the church entering house after house and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. That's not a sight for the squeamish. It's difficult to imagine such deep hatred. A hatred that in Acts chapter 9 led Saul to secure a letter from the high priest that would authorize him to pursue these Jesus people all the way into the city of Damascus, which was about 150 miles away. And he chose Damascus because it was the farthest outpost from Jerusalem with a significant number of Jesus followers. In fact, first century Jewish scholar Josephus writes about a time when there was a massacre of 10,000 Jesus followers in that city. And so he chose Damascus because he knew if he went all the way there, word would spread backwards from Damascus to Jerusalem that there is nowhere you can run, there is nowhere you can hide to escape Saul. That trip would have taken him about seven days. And over that time frame, his anger never subsides. His rage burns hotter with every mile he passes. This guy was bloodthirsty. It's why he claimed later the title, the chief of sinners. He wasn't attempting to sound modest. In Saul's mind, that's exactly what he was. And in looking at the darkness of his past, it helps us to understand his gratitude for God's grace. So in my study of these early scenes from the life of Paul, three truths jump out. Here's the first. Regardless of how we look on the outside, everyone has a dark side. Friend, you'd be amazed if you knew the darkness lurking in the pasts of the people who've made a difference in your life. Whether we want to acknowledge it or whether we want to admit it, we're all sinful by birth, by nature, and by choice. So never forget what life was like outside the boundaries of God's grace. Here's the second thing we see. Regardless of what you've done, no one is beyond hope. That's the great promise of this Christian message. No amount or depth of sin in your past can surpass the grace of God. If you question that, remember Saul of Tarsus. When Jesus saved him, he didn't put him on probation. The other disciples did that. 
God made him immediately a new creation. That's what makes grace so amazing. Here's the third thing we see. Regardless of how foul your past, anyone can find a new beginning in Jesus. It's never too late to start doing what's right. Or like my pastor used to say, it's never too late to begin again. When Saul encountered Jesus on that road to Damascus and knelt before the living God, he finally faced the reality of his sin. His life was transformed and he started doing what was right. Grace provides that kind of new beginning for Saul, for you, or for me, and it proves God's ability to use any of us regardless of our baggage. So don't get stuck on where you were. Your sins are forgiven. Your shame has been canceled. You aren't who you think you are. You're who he says you are. All you have to do is face the reality of your sin so your life can be transformed and you can start doing what's right. The only thing that begs to be asked today is will you do that right now? Would you bow your heads today? I don't know where you are. I don't know who you are. I don't know the darkness or the depths of the sin that has held you captive. But I tell you today, Jesus can change you. He can fix you. He can remake you. He can rescue you from whatever it is that you feel cannot be rescued. The only thing you need to do today, according to scripture, is admit that you're a sinner, confess that Jesus can save you, believe that in your heart, and you will be saved. And so today I want to give you an opportunity to do that like Saul, this terrorist who pursued the church before Jesus captured his heart. I want you to repeat these words after me. Say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, but I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? Would you change me? Would you come into my life, make me different, make me new, be my Lord, be my Savior, in Jesus' name, amen. Friend, if you prayed that prayer, you have become a new creation. You have begun a new life, a new journey, a journey away from where you are toward where God wants you to be, which is just more like Jesus. And we would love the opportunity to help you with that. So if you prayed that prayer, if you would click that link that says you're choosing to raise your hand, we want the opportunity to follow up with you and the opportunity to pray with you. I'm so excited for you. Welcome to the family of God. But I'm going to ask everybody who's watching this to close their eyes yet again. Because maybe you're watching this and you're a Jesus guy or you're a Jesus girl. But you've been dragging behind you your old identity. You've been dragging behind you the memories of offenses that you've made. and Thoughts that you've had and sins that you've committed. You say, Sean, today... I want to be like Saul on that road to Damascus, and I want to take on an entirely new identity. So if that's you, I want to pray for you, Father, today for my friends who are watching this, who, who have struggled with who they are, struggled with recognizing their ability to be your name bearer. God, today, would you flood us with new life? Would you flood us with new hope? Would you flood us with new visions of who we are as we take on your identity. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.